This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss pain and inflammation with Dr. Caitlin Zorn, ND. We'll learn about research into long COVID brain fog and fatigue with researcher Ashok Gupta. We'll find out why ultra-processed foods are so bad for you with Dr. David Nelson, ND. And lastly, we'll discover how to heal from trauma with Dr. Christine Gibson. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. What if looking at your age refers not to your face, but to your chest? Osaka Metropolitan University scientists have developed an AI model that accurately estimates a patient's age using chest photographs of healthy individuals collected from multiple facilities. Furthermore, they found a positive relationship between differences in the AI-estimated and chronological ages and a variety of chronic diseases such as hypertension and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. In the future, it's expected that AI biomarkers will be developed to predict life expectancy, estimate the severity of chronic diseases, and forecast surgery-related risks. A simple blood test may predict the risk of progressive heart and kidney disease in people with type 2 diabetes and kidney disease, according to new research published in the American Heart Association's flagship journal, Circulation. High levels of certain biomarkers are indicators of heart and kidney complications and may help predict future risks of disease progression, said lead author James Janusi, MD. Treatment with canagliflozin a sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor, lowered biomarker levels, and reduced the risk of hospitalization for heart failure and other risk complications in people at the highest risk. Health professionals regularly measure biomarkers to screen, diagnose, or treat specific conditions. Previous research has shown that concentrations of sub-biomarkers may predict the onset and progression of chronic kidney disease as well as cardiovascular events in people with type 2 diabetes. I'll be joined by Dr. Caitlin Zorn in a minute, but first, a little bit of business. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Dr. Caitlin Zorn is a Guelph naturopathic doctor who uses a blend of modern science and traditional healing therapies to treat the whole person. Both her own health experiences and helping others with their own health experiences has shaped the way that she practices. 
Her journey has helped her develop an interest in mental health, anxiety, depression, and other such topics, pain management, fatigue, and women's health. And for more information about her, you can always visit drcaitlinzorn.com. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Regular listeners of the show know that over the past six months or so, I've gone through some health difficulties. I've actually had two major surgeries. Oh. And with Mm -hmm. surgeries, as you can imagine, comes a fair bit of pain. So I thought it would be interesting if you came on the show today to talk about pain and inflammation. Are you game? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so can you uh, explain the concept of pain and inflammation? Yeah, so pain is actually helpful for us. So it's telling us that there's something going wrong in the body. It's basically our warning system that we need to do something about what's happening to prevent further harm. Yeah, and then inflammation comes along with that, and it's also naturally built into the body for protection as well and prevent further tissue damage and stuff like that. So both are necessary. Okay, and and what are some of the causes of pain and inflammation that might come around just by doing our everyday things? So I feel like most people go about their days with some sort of ache or pain. So it's very familiar to most people. But, you know, any type of injury, an infection, an autoimmune condition or chronic disease will have pain coming with it. And you had mentioned your surgery. So, um, yeah, that will obviously be causing that too. So how does pain and inflammation affect our overall well-being? Like what are the, what are the spin-off mm-hmm. effects? Yeah, so obviously you feel the pain, so there's a physical aspect and it's going to be affecting your mobility and your quality of life, but then it, it will have a mental toll too. So it can sometimes become a, a cycle where it's like you're you're in pain so you're not really feeling up to doing things and and stuff like that. Okay, so there's different types of pain. There, there's acute pain and chronic pain. Can you explain the differences and, and how inflammation may impact those pains? Yeah, so uh, when we're talking about acute pain, it's uh, short-lived and it goes back to that initial warning sign that uh, something something's going wrong and then inflammation is part of that. And that generally lasts about a week or a few weeks. And then we go into chronic pain where that's long-term and it's past the initial point of healing, but there's a concern there when that becomes long-term because it can lead to tissue damage and you end up having more pain. Okay, so let's focus on on chronic inflammation for a moment then. What sort of lifestyle factors are there that contribute to chronic pain and inflammation? Mm -hmm. So uh, chronic pain does look more, the whole body affects chronic pain. So your diet, exercise level, stress level, smoking, alcohol consumption, those can all contribute or worsen ongoing chronic pain. So yeah, it's not just a matter of, you know, recovering from my surgery, whatever. There are some things that you can do in your lifestyle that will help with the inflammation. So what are some of the things that people can do to reduce their risk of of chronic inflammation? So I like to start with diet first. So as a naturopathic doctor, I I like to focus on that. And it's pretty basic. So having um, fruits and vegetables, focusing on an anti-inflammatory diet overall. So that will include things like fish, walnuts that have the omega-3 fatty acids, exercising regularly. And I know, you know, if you're in pain or inflamed, you might not want to exercise really, but uh, it is important. And then, of course, stress management and, you know, limiting smoking and other toxin intake. 
Okay, so let, let's focus on on physical activity. I actually just got the approval today from my surgeon to get back to my workout program, mm-hmm. which is good news for me. How does uh, physical activity impact inflammation and pain? And are there specific exercises or things that we can do that would be beneficial? Yeah, so the reason why exercise is helpful is because it is anti-inflammatory. It promotes circulation. So, you know, if you're with your surgery, you might have been a bit stagnant or not moving around as much. So the exercise is going to help circulate the healing compounds in your body. And you can focus more on low-impact exercises. So that would be walking, swimming, cycling, or even strength training and flexibility. So I like yoga personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, yeah, that's always good for joint health, balance, muscle strengthening. Okay, so you you said your sweet spot before and where you would start is diet. So Uh let's focus on on the role that diet plays in inflammation and pain and and beyond the omega-rich foods of, you know, the fishes and and the walnuts, you know, what kind of foods people should be focusing on for pain management. It comes back to the basics again, so eating whole foods because that's going to provide you with the anti-inflammatory compounds, antioxidants, fiber, and healthy fats. Uh, We want to stay away from um, high sugar processed foods uh, and unhealthy fats, high salt, stuff like that, because that can all encourage the inflammation to go more into a a chronic state. Okay. Why would a processed food or sugar make pain or inflammation worse? Yeah. So sugar or processed foods, they increase inflammatory compounds in the body. And yeah, that just will kind of perpetuate that ongoing cycle. Yeah, it basically comes down to that, I would say. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to supplements. Are there any supplements that people can use to tackle pain other than like, or, you know, our choices like Tylenol or, or Advil? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, many people want to seek out alternatives for pain management. And there are a lot that are out there right now and it can be overwhelming to people. So, but I'm going to focus on a few that you can take internally and then externally. So, uh, curcumin is a popular one, PEA, which you might not have heard of before, palmitol Dolomite, which we'll get into later. We're gonna uh, we're gonna here. call it P. Okay. Okay. Sure. We're not. No, I'm not gonna even attempt that word. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that works for me too. Cool. Then I, this next one, serapeptidase. We can shorten that too. <laughs> what are we gonna call it? Um, How about Sarah? Sarah? Okay. Cool. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And then the topical ones would be liquid DMSO, and then your just standard body massage gels, which you can find um, in a lot of different areas. So yeah. Okay, so let's circle back to the first one you mentioned, which was curcumin. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that one and how it should be used and, and what it does? Yes, there is a lot of research on curcumin out there. It's pretty broad spectrum in its effects. So it can help with chronic aches and pains, back pain, sports injuries, arthritis. And I actually came across a study that looked at curcumin with glucosamine that was taken over four months, and it was helpful in reducing the knee osteoarthritis. So I thought that was that was interesting. And then another larger study found it helpful in other inflammatory pain disorders, so like rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, even gout. So it has anything that's inflammation based, it uh, will definitely have a good effect. Okay, so let's move on to P, and mm-hmm. and that's an acronym P E A. So yep. uh, I don't know much about this, so I'd be very interested to learn. 
what pee can do for me. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So like uh, curcumin, it's anti-inflammatory, but it's also what we call an analgesic. And that means that it can change our perception to pain. So in a study using this PEA, over four weeks found that your heat and cold cold tolerance was actually improved after using this. So interesting to, to notice that effect. And also some uh, research used, to, used in neuropathic pain, so like diabetic neuropathy. So that's uh, the PEA. Okay, so I'm not, again, I'm not attempting this word, the, the SARA, as we decided we were going to talk mm-hmm. about. So this is an enzyme. Can you explain how it, it impacts uh, inflammation? Yeah, so uh, some people might wonder, you know, how can an enzyme help with inflammation? Well, after an injury, you have a lot of waste tissue. So your body is going to need to need some help to break that down and be cleared from the body to recover. So it's called a proteolytic enzyme. And I found that uh, it has been used a lot around dental and oral surgeries. So yeah, just when you know there's surgery and you have a lot of tissue buildup, it can help after the surgery. Okay. Well, that's good for me to know. Maybe I should get on that right yeah. away. Uh, DMSO liquid. What is that? That's another new one for me. Yeah, yeah, it is a newer one. So this one's a bit unique too. It's more helpful for uh, soft tissue injuries. So this is things like ligaments, tendons. So an example would be for sprained ankle, uh, rotator cuff, tennis elbow, which are all pretty common. And it is topical. So what's good about that is it will act fast, whereas the other supplements might take a bit longer to notice an effect. But yeah, it is a, it's a good option too. Is it reactive or is it preventative? I would say it's reactive, whereas the ones that are focusing more on anti-inflammatory would be preventative. Yeah. Okay. Because the topical nature, like if, if it's doing the work that you say it is, it would, there probably would have to be pain first, so you would know where to, know where to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of put it where it hurts. <laughs> right. So that's kind of like uh, the body muscle massage gels. So are, are there any natural options to like something like Icy Hot or those gels that people put on? Yeah. So the common compound found in those would be menthol, but yeah. there are other natural uh, based gels and they use more herbal remedies. So I'm not sure if you've heard of Arnica, but uh, that's a common one used sure. in these topical gels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that has been found to be helpful for just overall aches and pains. Um, arthritis, low back pain, you can uh, apply it to that area. It can also help after an operation too um, with swelling and to bring down bruising. But you just want to make sure there's not any open tissue there. You mean like any wounds or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So you would just make sure that that's all healed up. And if there's bruising, then you can um, apply some of that, that there. Okay. Are there any specific conditions or situations where these natural pain relief options might be actually more effective than others? Yeah. So going back to inflammation specifically, uh, curcumin would kind of take the first place there. Um, And then if you're dealing with an autoimmune pain disorder, so rheumatoid arthritis would be a common one there. The neuropathic pains, uh, PEA seems to be gaining more recognition there. And I mentioned the diabetic neuropathy, but it could be helpful for things like sciatica or carpal tunnel. So anything that has kind of like a more intense burning pain and the serapeptidase for after 
operations and going to the topicals are great for if you are taking other medications and you want to avoid some interactions there and are looking for maybe a more instant relief. Are you aware of any contraindications for any of these, I guess, enzymes or natural Mm -hmm. products such that, you know, you might want to consider speaking to a practitioner uh, an MD yeah. or a doctor? Yeah, so anything that, um, so curcumin can potentially cause blood thinning. So any anyone that's taking blood thinners um, might want to talk to an expert about this. And then anything that has like some sort of sedative, so anything that will be sedating you a little bit to help with the pain, some herbal remedies can do that too. So you just want to make sure that those won't interact. We have time for one last question, and that is okay. how can consumers ensure that they're getting high quality supplements like the, the, the types that you mentioned that are, are safe and effective? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot out there, and I feel like it's probably confusing for people to you know see all these ads and magazines and stuff like that but basically looking at something that has high certification levels so uh, that's called ISO uh, like 17025 looking at a manufacturer that's well established um, and you know has a a good reputation and um, also working with uh, someone like a naturopathic doctor we're more familiar with what the higher quality brands are so that can help you uh, gain more awareness too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Dr. Caitlin Zorn. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss long COVID brain fog on The Tonic. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Ashok Gupta is an internationally renowned speaker, filmmaker, and health practitioner who has dedicated his life to supporting people through chronic illness and achieving their potential. After studying at Cambridge University, he set up a clinic and then published the well-known recovery program known as the Gupta Program in 2007. He's published several medical papers, a regular app called The Meaning of Life Experiment, and recently published a study looking into treatment options for long COVID. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. So I understand you had a little bit of background with health and wellness issues yourself. When you were at university, you suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome. Can you tell us about that and how you managed to overcome that? 
Uh, yes, so I personally suffered from ME or chronic fatigue syndrome when I was at university studying as an undergrad. And so for a young man like myself at that time in the mid-90s, it was like a, a brick wall in front of me. And so I conducted lots of brain research, neurological research in an ad hoc way, retrained my brain, and then completely healed myself from that condition, and then set up a clinic to treat others. So fast forward, you recently concluded a study into potential treatments for long COVID. Can you explain some of the common side effects that you've come across and how people are dealing with it? Yeah, so long COVID has a whole range of different symptoms that come, including mainly exhaustion, fatigue, post-exertional malaise, which means people have a lot of fatigue or any kind of exercise, as well as sore throats and a lot of immunotype symptoms as well. And we traditionally were treating chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and sensitivity syndromes. And when long COVID came, came along, a lot of patients were actually using our program for that as well. And therefore, we started treating those patients. And we recently just completed a randomized controlled trial on long COVID. This was with patients who'd had the condition for at least three months. And it's just been published in the Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine Journal. And it showed that compared to a wellness program, our treatment, the GUPS program, was four times more effective at reducing fatigue and twice as effective at increasing energy levels in these patients. So it was great to have a, you know, a randomized controlled trial showing the ob- objectively that this was beneficial. Okay. Can you sort of elaborate on exactly what your study was looking at and the type of treatments that you were evaluating? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the way it was set up was we recruited patients from a patient group online, and half of those patients took a wellness program, which included diet, sleep, you know, exercise, and just general health and well-being yep. type of advice. And then our treatment, the Gupta program, which was obviously the brain retraining neuroplasticity approaches to long COVID. And we followed those patients for three months as they were going through those treatments. And then we evaluated those treatments in terms of questionnaires that were given every month to uh, those patients. So what sort of neuroplasticity exercises were you doing? Was it puzzles? Was it like memory work? What was it? These are actually brain retraining. So the easiest analogy would be when patients experience a stroke. And many patients after a stroke may lose control of a limb, for instance. And they have to go through rehabilitation to rewire the brain to be able to gain back control. In a similar way, we believe the immune system has gone completely haywire and overstimulated. And we use some specific types of brain retraining, brain rehabilitation treatments that actually train the brain to calm down the immune system and switch it off. And that might sound like, well, how do you do that? Taking 20 years to really develop those specific signals that we can give to our unconscious brain that we are no longer in the presence of threats, essentially. That's some of what our treatment involves. So the core part of the treatment is the brain retraining and there are supportive techniques which include things like relaxing the brain, mindfulness. All of these things help calm the overall stimulation of the brain. And then the brain retraining is the core of it that trains the brain to no longer overstimulate these types of neurological responses. So with respect to the mindfulness you just mentioned, are, are you looking at meditation as well? Like you said, you're trying to quiet the brain in part. So I would, uh... Yes, so we use breathing and meditation techniques. And it is known in the neuroplasticity world that our brains are more neuroplastic, more malleable when they are actually calmer. Yeah, that we're able to learn new things when the brain is calmer. And so specifically that helps 
prepare the ground for the retraining. And so when you talk about the treatment itself, so the neuroplasticity exercises and the mind calming, what sort of results were you seeing from the treatment? Like, what can you extrapolate from the treatment? Well, when we've conducted published studies, for instance, the clinical audits, we found that 92% of patients improved and around two-thirds of patients reached a full recovery within a year. And that was a clinical audit published uh, a number of years ago on chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And another randomized control trial we published on fibromyalgia also found that we had a 40% reduction in fibromyalgia scores and a halving of pain within eight weeks compared to a control group. So these are types of responses we're getting. And with our long COVID patients, generally because they've had the condition for a reduced amount of time compared to our other patients, Generally, we're getting people better within weeks and months. They're seeing improvements, and within a few months, they, many of them are getting to an 80 to 100% recovery. Although we encourage patients not to be complacent and to continue with the treatments for as long as is required. Are you seeing different results based on demographics or age? So, for example, are your older subjects doing as well as younger subjects in terms of neuroplasticity working to sort of reprogram the brain? Interestingly, we haven't noticed that. What we found is that the critical success factors aren't actually age, but in fact, the I suppose the dedication that someone gives to this type of treatment. Sure. Because as you can imagine, when you're rewiring the brain, it's actually about the repetition and the commitment to that repetition because you're building new neural pathways. Right. And they require particular exercises that we encourage our patients to do to be repeated throughout the day. And so the critical success factor is how much do they do that? How much do they invest the time with the tools and techniques? For instance, we had a guy in his 80s who had fibromyalgia for like 30 years, right? And he was able to use our program and heal himself and get his energy back. And we said, well, you know, you're in your, you know, 83, 84, what are you going to do now with your life? And he said, I'm going to travel the world. (laughs) You know, he was doing that. He wasn't going to let this hold him back. And so that's what we say. It's never too late to, it doesn't matter how long you've had the condition. And sometimes people might get into a state of cynicism or just feeling they're never going to get better because they've tried so many different things. And we always encourage our patients to maintain that optimism and belief that they can heal and that, you know, healing and health is their birthright. So this is a fairly recent study. Are you aware of any other uh, studies that sort of corroborate your findings or or perhaps are a little bit different than than what you found out? Uh, We're not aware of any other studies that have been conducted on uh, neuroplasticity approaches or brain retraining type treatments. We believe this is the first study in this particular area, the first randomized controlled trial showing results. And in general, there hasn't been much published that has shown significant or sustained improvement for long COVID patients. So for us, this is a very exciting area. And hopefully as we conduct larger scale studies, we can finally prove and demonstrate this to the mainstream medical profession that this is a a viable treatment for long COVID. So forgive me, because I I don't have all the details of your study. Like how many people were involved in it? And so when you talk about doing further studies, like what sort of plans do you have to extrapolate and and perhaps take it further? So our study was an initial randomized controlled trial with 42 patients. So 42 patients completed uh, the study. And therefore, it's obviously a small scale study. Yeah, yeah. looking at phase two, phase three trials, which would be hundreds, you know, perhaps up to a thousand patients involved in the study. And only when you have those larger numbers, can you finally prove that a treatment is uh, objectively effective uh, versus a smaller scale trial. So that's what we're looking to do. And these patients, you know, many of them were severely ill. So many of them were bed bound. 
which seems, you know, may seem bizarre for many people that just having COVID could suddenly, you know, end up making you stay in bed for you know, 12, 15 hours a day. But that's some of the effects that this was having on patients. And, you know, but many of our patients were able to, you know, heal, to get back to normal work. And this was, you know, very positive and very exciting for those patients. Are there any symptoms of long COVID that you identified that aren't impacted by your program? In other words, that aren't as effective? What I would say is that sometimes the gut takes longer to heal. So many of our patients heal and recover, but they may have some ongoing gut issues as a result of the overstimulation of the, the nervous system and immune system. So people continue to, and you know, we encourage our patients to continue on good, healthy diets, making sure that they are able to uh, you know, maintain that level of health. One last question. If people want uh, more information about your program, where should they go? Well, we're very pleased to announce we now have an app, uh, which makes it a lot easier to use. So they can visit our website, which is guptaprogram.com, which is G-U-P-T-A program.com. Or indeed, they can go to App Store or Play Store. They can download the free app. And there's lots of free resources, free videos, where so they can sample our content and see whether this type of approach is right for them. And we're also launching a daily healing session, which is free to anybody, and they can attend that. And that's uh, Zoom calls every day through the app as well to support healing. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. That was Ashok Gupta. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss ultra-processed foods on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Imagine a healthier and happier you. Hi there, I'm Dr. Cordial Karamantang, head of the ICU at the Ottawa Hospital. Every day, I see how important healthy habits are. And that's why I've created a course that could change your life. Do you want to lose weight, feel happier? I've got a few pointers to share with you. So why not take my course and give it a try? It's risk-free with a money-back guarantee. Visit 28dayreboot.co. That's 28dayreboot.co. Let's make a change together. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. David Nelson is invited faculty at the Nova Institute for Health of People, Places, and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness service business owner, and he's written numerous academic articles. His latest establishes the importance of acid-alkaline balance of the foods we eat. He lives in Woodstock with his family, and he is a regular guest on the show. Welcome back, David. How are you doing? Not too bad, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. I feel like our conversation today is going to be something that people have heard before, but I hope to have some new information to encourage people to revisit what they think they know. Okay. 
That's a high bar, yes, but, but you're the man, you're the man with the new science. So let's start at the beginning though, because we have some listeners who may not have heard us cover this before. What are ultra processed foods? Yeah, good. So I mean, I'm glad you're asking that basic question because I think a lot of people potentially think they might understand what that means. But I want to actually be a little bit more specific here. So when you go to the grocery store or you're using food at home, you can actually make a quick qualification of what we're talking about. Ultra processed food actually has a definition. And the definition comes from a scientist in Brazil. His name is Carlos Monteiro. And he noticed that the Brazilian population was gaining, frankly, way too much weight. So he said, what the heck is going on here? And he noticed that their exposure to ultra processed food was high. So he said, okay, we need a classification system for ultra processed food. So I'm going to give it to you quickly. And it's called the NOVA framework. No association with where I work at the NOVA Institute, but it's called, he called it the NOVA framework. So there's four different categories, NOVA 1, 2, 3, and 4. So I'm going to group three together, and I'm going to kind of put one as an outlier. Yep. NOVA 1, 2, and 3 actually contain real food. So let me go through them. Number one, NOVA 1 is unprocessed or minimally processed. So this group includes the edible parts, and we know what these things are, the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, the stems. If it's an animal product, it's muscle, it could be an egg, it could be milk. These are minimally processed. There's not a lot of things that have happened. And what you do is you you do a few things, like you might take a stem off or you might remove part of it, but you're eating essentially the thing that is there. The whole food. Okay, yep. the whole food. But of course, we can't just eat that all the time. Some of the times that we have to do some pressing, a little bit of grinding, maybe some milling to bring those culinary ingredients into a place where we can use them. So that would be something like uh, butter, for example, would be a minimally processed ingredient. So how do you make that naturally? You take some milk with heavy with cream in it. That's 3.8 to 4.2%. You churn it up. Even by a hand churner, you can get butter out of that, and you can use that as butter. Yep. Okay, It's minimally processed. And you're using real ingredients to begin with from group one. Nova 3 is a processed food. So that's group one foods that have been salted, sugared, smoked, pickled, or fermented. It also includes group two foods. So these things could be like canned tomatoes, which, you know, is a traditional method for storing things when we didn't have freezers or fridges or root cellars. Cheeses would be in this group, for example. Freshly made bread. So Nova 1, 2, and 3, you can eat those foods and you will have generally health benefits from those things. Yep. Ultra-processed food is not food. This is the problem. It's formulated mostly or entirely from industrial ingredients, additives, things that have been extracted, synthesized, and they create things that are durable, accessible, convenient, and palatable, and ready to eat. But the problem is, the science is coming out, turns out ultra-processed food, in category four, Nova 4 is a disaster for human health. Okay, so let's talk about why it's a disaster and what the research, the current research says. Yeah, so this research has been building over time. It started about 20 years ago, and even a little bit, a little bit more, but what's really making the impact here is the gut microbiome. We really didn't know how ultra-processed food was creating a lot of these problems. So let me give you some really recent science on this. Starting in 2019, 
They did a metabolic ward study, and here are the two arms of the trial. All foods are matched for calories and micronutrients, okay? So, so this is not a calories in, calories out. This is about the processing of the food. The first arm of the trial ate all real food. The second arm of the trial ate all ultra-processed food. Now, here's the secret sauce of this trial. They let people eat as much as they wanted. So it was called an ad libitum trial. You could eat as much of the food as you wanted. It was just controlled for calories and micronutrients. So remember, everybody ate the same macronutrient ratio and had the same exposure to micronutrients. Here's what happened. The people who were exposed to ultra-processed food, and you want to hold your breath on this one, they consumed 502 calories more per day (laughs) eating ultra-processed food. When you aggregate that over seven days, that is a pound of additional fat accumulation, essentially, per week. Wow. Okay, that's a 2019 trial. And now there's more coming out. So I'll give you one more. A study looked at our kind of the the Pareto principle. So how bad is this? We say, oh, 80-20, 80-20 rule. Yep. Turns out if you eat 80% good and 20% ultra-processed food, you increase your rate of cognitive decline by 25%. And not only that, the newest science is showing diabetes, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver disease, and dementia, cognitive decline in that elder population, looks like it's a lack of something called phytonutrients or polyphenols, specifically flavanols for dementia. So there is now studies that show that the elder population, over 60, who are not eating their fruits and vegetables, They have a decreased brain function, and if you give them supplemental flavanols, they'll increase memory, attention, and cognitive retention. So it looks like we've missed some stuff about the difference between real food and ultra-processed food, and it's not just the calories and the micronutrients, it's the phytonutrients that are in it. Wow. Okay. This is big. Like, this is big. Okay. So uh, here's the thing. I think we need to look at why people eat the ultra-processed foods before yeah. we, we, we take the next step. And I have some yeah. thoughts on this. Why, why do you think people eat the ultra-processed foods? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to Henry Dimbleby, who just wrote a book called Ravenous. It's an excellent read. And what uh, Henry Dimbleby found was this, and he, he addresses this in his book. We have something called an extinction of experience and a, an extinction of skill acquisition. Yep. There are groups and demographics of people who were never taught how to cook, So that's one. And number two, we often have two parents now who are working in the home. As you know, you and I share this affinity for delicious food and real food. It takes time. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to go acquire it. You have to know what ingredients you're going to get. You've got to know how to combine it. You need to be skilled in the kitchen. You have to have the time to come home, put everything together, make it all up, put it in the wherever it's going to, to cook it and then put it on the table. And you're looking at hours of time. So we don't have that time now. So we go to convenience and we were told and sold that these things in bags, boxes, and uh, all these other things, as long as they're low fat, they're good for you. Turned out it's the biggest 
kind of, uh, I don't know, hoax that we, I don't know. It's just, we were told things that are just not true. And now with the emerging science of the microbiome, you know, it started in 1956. There's 127 trials, 127,000 trials since 1956. But the big news is 70,000 of those were done in the last three years, 2020, 2021, and 2022. So we're getting incredible resolution in our gut about what some of these foods are doing. I just don't think people know. And so we're sold this. And Dimbleby talks about this in his book. He said he got an egg salad sandwich at the airport. So then he went and looked at the ingredients and he said, this isn't food. The bread isn't food. Nothing is food in this. It's all industrial made food. Okay. So your hypothesis is that people knew this, they would change. I'm not sure they would. I'm not sure they would, because I think you've touched upon the reason. The convenience factor is crucial, but I also think it's a cost factor. And it's also, oh, yeah. and it's also an accessibility factor, right? Like yeah, there, you're right. There are yeah. areas of what we call food deserts where people cannot access fresh whole foods. They just can't. You yeah, know, and, well, it's, this, and it's typically poor people that are impacted by this. And the people that are working you know, two or three jobs just to sort of pay their rent are not going to have the time and the access to the whole foods that they can cook. And I think it's a cultural thing too. Like you take a look at Toronto surrounding areas where we're a culture of immigrants and people come with their food cultures, right? So you have people who, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of money and maybe they're working hard, but they will make it their business to eat healthy foods, to eat their Mm -hmm. greens, to eat, you know, to eat the slow cooked meats or whatever it does. But then there are others who come from a different culture who don't. And I'm just, Mm -hmm. I, I just wonder what we can do to bridge that gap, because I don't think it's just information. I, I, I think there's a lot more going on there, which yeah. almost forces people into these poor diets. Well, you, you've hit upon what's called the commercial and social determinants of health. So one of the things that I didn't know of Institute is we talk about these things, and you've mentioned food deserts. This is a travesty. So if you remember the shooting in Buffalo that yep. happened last year, yep. right? that was the only grocery store. And it just went in. Yeah. Otherwise, people had to go 15 kilometers or more on a bus in heavy traffic, which takes three hours to go pick up a bag of oranges. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So you're, you're 100% right. We need to have more. What I think is we need a two-pronged approach. Somehow it has to be a grassroots approach where we make these things local. We grow them. We cultivate the things in our gardens. But if you don't have a garden and you live in a high rise, then you need somewhere that you have access. That's one. And number two, we need to change the way that the the food system is subsidized to stop promoting foods that are used as raw materials to make ultra-processed foods and use those subsidies to go to foods that are made that are whole that we can utilize. It's a complex problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we could also use tools like, you know, warnings on the labels and agreed and taxation structures. You know, if you're taxing cigarettes and alcohol for the harm that they're doing physically, I think the ultra-processed food purveyors should also be similarly taxed. Well, the soda tax in Britain actually did have that effect, and soda consumption went down, and water and other consumptions went up. So you're 100% right about that. The sugar tax on consumable liquid beverages put downward pressure on the consumption of those things. You are right about that. Okay, we're in agreement. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely, Jamie. I love being on here. You always have great topics. That was Dr. David Nelson, ND. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss responses to trauma on The Tonic. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market Sunday, September 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Shop local organic vendors and enjoy green roof activities and drop-in garden workshops. There's barbecue, live music, big deals, and a kid's craft zone. Fun for the whole family. And admission is free. 
Stop by 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and wellness. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Christine Gibson is a family physician, trauma therapist, and author of the Modern Trauma Toolkit. She's also on social media as a TikTok trauma doc. That's very catchy. With over 130,000 followers. She has a master's in medical education and is halfway through a doctorate and has been involved in academics and education creating Calgary's Fellowship in Health Equity. She runs an international nonprofit global family med foundation, a cooperative and a new company to train professionals how to manage workplace trauma, safer spaces training. You can reach her on her website for more information at christinegibson.net. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm great, thanks. And Christine is fine. Okay. Jamie is fine for me. Okay. Super. <laughs> uh, so the reason I thought it would be interesting to bring you on the show is I had a trauma myself earlier this year. I actually had emergency surgery for a burst colon. And obviously, I'm alive and well. But post-surgery, there was a lot to sort of unwrap and get through. And I know that's not necessarily the trauma you're speaking of, but my view is trauma is trauma. So I was interested to hear what you had to say on the topic. Does that sound like a plan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, medical trauma is very real, and I definitely deal with that. So can you explain your concept of post-traumatic growth and how it may differ from traditional views of trauma recovery? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's a concept that I try to differentiate from resilience because everyone talks about building resilience, and I think that's important. It's your ability to bounce back. So, for example, after a surgery, you want your body to bounce back and return to normal functioning. The difference between resilience and post-traumatic growth is that you kind of level up. So post-traumatic growth is when you learn new skills, when you learn new ways to adapt and cope, when you've gained a different kind of understanding about yourself or the world, and you've actually improved your quality of life, or you've improved your kind of vision or your values, but things have changed in a, in a new way. So I, I encourage people to aim towards post-traumatic growth instead of resilience, because what if you can use this challenge as a jump-off point for the kind of transformation that you're wanting to make? Yeah, I mean, physically, like I was already sort of living a healthy lifestyle. It's sort of the theme of this show. But I definitely started thinking of things differently after the first surgery. Like, uh, you know, I'm still the same person I was because I have a very strong personality. But my worldview has changed a bit. I actually wrote about it in the upcoming issue of the magazine. How does the polyvagal theory contribute to our understanding of trauma responses and healing? And perhaps you should explain what polyvagal theory is. Yeah, for sure. I mean... I've been a medical doctor for 20 years, and this was something that was brought to my attention from, you know, one of the community workers at the food center who's really studied trauma deeply. This changed everything for me. So I'd been taught about fight and flight as the way that our body responds to a traumatic event. So we try to run away from it. We try to fight it off. This is because we have mammal bodies. What I didn't understand was the freeze response. And that's what the polyvagal theory has to do with is there's two branches of our vagus nerve. One goes into our face. And when we are in a calm body, we can access that branch where we are connected to people. We call it social engagement. So our 
facial expression or tone of voice really helps another person stay calm. We call that co-regulation. But there's another branch to the vagus nerve, and what that does is it inhibits our sympathetic nervous system. So it's not quite the parasympathetic driving, but it inhibits sympathetic, which is the fight and flight, and it slows the whole system down. And what that looks like is a person who can't get out of bed, a person who can't get off the couch, who can't get through their list of things to do. In severe states, it's it's significant dissociation or just disconnection from reality. And I was seeing a lot of that in my practice. And, and before I understood polyvagal theory, I always thought of, you know, trauma as a tense and sympathetic tone response, like lots of restlessness, lots of movement, anxiety. And now I recognize it from both perspectives that it can be sped up or slowed down. But either way, if the body in an overactive response from the nervous system perspective. And when I think of it as something physical, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what to do with physical problems. And it helps me learn more about what's possible. Yeah, I can tell you categorically that I struggled with my day-to-day tasks and sort of conceiving how I would tackle my work tasks once I was back at work. In other words, everything became harder to do post-trauma. Yeah, it's I wouldn't say I had to retrain myself, but I became very consciously aware of how many things I could take on during the day to the point where, you know, you know, everybody loves an afternoon nap. But I actually needed one in order to cope with the work that I was doing, where previously it would be like a piece of cake, like no problem at all. So even though I had physically healed, I was still sort of struggling with energies. Is that sort of what you're saying? That can definitely be part of it. One interesting theory I've also learned since studying this is something called spoon theory, and it's basically just pacing yourself. So yeah. spoon theory is, you know, you only have so many spoons in a day and you can't use them all in the morning. <laughs> you just totally run out. I was taught that by a patient. I did not know that as a physician. So I find that the more that I delve into trauma, the more I'm, I'm learning about the way people have found metaphors and other ways to just figure out, like, what does life look like now? Things are different. And, you know, allowing yourself and scheduling in that afternoon nap and just making sure you're really pacing through the day, that's important from physical trauma. But what I don't think people realize is you can compound the psychological and physical trauma where both of them are taking spoons from your system and going through, you know, a significant surgery or series of surgeries, near-death experiences, all of that is going to take a lot of spoons. You've written this book. Let's talk about some of the tools and some of the things that you've learned in the course of your practice, which I presume has made its way into the book. So can you explain something called affirmations? What's that about? Yeah, so a lot of the tools that I go through are body-based or somatic, and some of them are cognitive because what I've discovered is you can't think your way out of a trauma response. So affirmations are a substitute that I learned for affirmations. So affirmations are just basically saying, you know, my body is my temple, my home is safe, good things happen to me, um, I attract good things. And once you've been through trauma, those affirmations can feel pretty weak because you've been through something significant. And sometimes when you try an affirmation, it feels like you're gaslighting yourself. So an affirmation is just a really gentle and slow move towards an affirmation. So you would say the same thing, but just with the word what if in front of it. What if I do attract good things? What if today's going to be a good day? What if good things could happen to me? And you're just 
planting the seed of possibility instead of trying to convince yourself that something is true where your body's kind of rejecting that. So I like affirmations because it's just a possibility and you can approach them as slowly as you need to. What if I can imagine a time in the future that I might believe this affirmation to be true? Okay. You have another concept called the container. Can you explain to the listeners what that is about and what the process is leaving behind, quote unquote, a box of shame? Yeah, so this is this is something that I often do with a body-based tool. So I'll use something called havening, which is gently brushing the skin that creates really calm brain waves, or I'll use tapping, which is self-acupressure. And along with those body-based techniques, I'll walk a patient through the container method, and the book walks you through it as well. Basically, what you're doing is you're using your imagination to create a metaphor in the brain. So The subconscious mind is where a lot of these foundational beliefs live, and it's really hard to think your way through it. So it's why I'm not a huge fan for things like CBT after trauma, because it's hard to think your way out of foundational beliefs. But imagery and metaphor and body-based movements are a really good doorway into shifting those. So with the container method, what I do is I have a person imagine a container. It could be Tupperware, it could be a box, it could be a trunk, could be anything. And inside that container, they just imagine the weight of shame. What is the amount of shame that's been given to you from your family of origin, from your workplace, whatever it is that you're feeling like you need to get rid of, what is the weight of that? You don't have to imagine what's inside the box. You just kind of imagine what does the box look like, all of the details, what's the material that it's made from, what color is it, how is it sealed, and then just tell me what the weight is. Great. Where can we dump this? Do we drop it in the bottom of the ocean? Do we bury it somewhere? Do we leave it on someone's doorstop and ring the bell and run away. We go through this imaginal scenario where we leave the shame behind. And that metaphor can be really powerful for people, especially if they're putting their body in a calm state while they're doing it. So these kinds of body-based practices can absolutely shift the foundational beliefs about the world and about ourselves. So it sounds to me like the trauma that this would be good for is obviously different than sort of a medical trauma. Are we talking about trauma of assault or other sorts of yeah, social, well, social aspects about, or yeah well we're talking about developmental trauma generally that's this belief that the world isn't safe or that people can't be trusted or that bad things happen to you if i was doing it with somebody with medical trauma which is something that i do deal with i i deal with some palliative care sometimes or end of life care we would bury regrets we would bury hopelessness we would bury something that is an obstacle from psychological healing from that. So with medical trauma, it might be something like pain. We would allow ourselves to think of all the pain that you've been through with psychological and physical and let it go. Because a lot of times chronic pain is actually stuck signal pathways. It's something that has happened and that signal is continuing to be sent to the brain to say, hey, did you know this problem is happening? And even though the pain signal has dampened down from the place of origin, like the surgical site, sometimes that pathway can get stuck on. So these are the kinds of things that I might work through with patients. So yeah, the container method is possible for medical trauma. You would just tweak it slightly. But a lot of people need to leave things behind or let them go 
at that foundational subconscious level once they've been through significant event trauma, which is what you're describing. If people are interested in learning more about the techniques and, and theories that are in your book, where should they go? Well, my website is moderntrauma.com, but the book is really available everywhere. It was, you know, a major American publisher, and it's available at most bookstores, on Amazon, everything like that. And, of course, I love to encourage people to go to their local bookstore because I, I love print books. I also had the huge privilege of recording my own audiobook because when we talk about polyvagal theory, the way that your voice sounds is really important to feeling safe in the body. So it was important for me to read my own audiobook. So that is available anywhere you get audiobooks. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, great questions. And I'm sorry about what you've been through. Thanks for sharing about that. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Caitlin Zorn, N.D., Ashok Gupta, Dr. David Nelson, N.D., and Dr. Christine Gibson. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.